This is Continuum Drag, a weekly podcast for visiting television, sci-fi, fantasy, and everything in between. This week, Between Time and Timbuktu. In a few moments from now, in this typical modest American home, in this modest American community, you will meet the man who has won the grand prize in the blast-off space jingle contest, the energy drink of the astronauts and mission control. We're going to present him with a grand prize of a trip to the chronosynclastic infundibulum. Welcome to Continuum Drag, the podcast unstuck from time and space. I'm Luke, here with my co-host Jordan. What's real, Jordan? General ineptitude and some character flaws. <laughs> that made me laugh. Is that Was that one of the character descriptions of themselves? Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, well, they asked, they asked Stoney what took him so long to get there, and that's what he said. General ineptitude and some character flaws. <laughs> A lot to enjoy in this, produ- in this production. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this week we're watching a 1972 TV movie between Time and Timbuktu. Yeah, this is, I, I think you maybe will agree with me, the trippiest movie we've ever seen. It certainly lives in a very strange space. And I I, yeah. I, I mentioned this before we watch it. I think it sort of lives in that world of, uh, what was the uh, Ursula Le Guin? Le Guin. Oh, the uh, La- Lath of Heaven, Lath of Heaven. Lath of Heaven. It's sort of in that world, particularly because it was also produced for public television as a, as a TV movie and is also... From a esteemed science fiction author, it, it's based on the writings of Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah, but but a weird thing because it's not like a it's not like Slaughterhouse Five or Cat's Cradle or Sirens of Titan or whatever. It's little bits and pieces of things. So it's got the feel of Vonnegut, and you know you're in his sort of universe, for lack of a better term. But it's not a straight adaptation. It's like here's bits of it's like a, a almost. An introduction to Vonnegut. It's a little sampler platter. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, did, it's a charcuterie plate of Vonnegut. Did you see which Vonnegut it's based on? Well, you know what? I, I could tell you a couple things I pulled out. I know I noticed Cat's Cradle. I noticed Sirens of Titan because I wrote it down. I wrote, well, I uh, noticed Welcome to the Monkey House, Happy Birthday 1 of June, and Slaughterhouse 5. Those are the ones I noticed. I'm sure there's more. I The only one I have I was able to find that you didn't mention was Harrison Bergeron. Mm. But I knew, now the audience doesn't know, but well, they'll know now, is that you're somewhat of a Vonnegut super fan. I wouldn't say I'm a super fan. I do, uh, you, know, you, know it's, you know who else is a, a real big Vonnegut fan is um, uh, Kaveh. That is guest. true. That is true. Yeah. Former guest Kaveh is also a super fan. Yeah, uh, I only know that because when he came over to record and all my, my Vonnegut books from the back and he mentioned it, and we had a nice little conversation with Vonnegut. Yeah, I weirdly sort of discovered Vonnegut. I had read a little bit but when I was younger, but in my late 20s, early 30s, I couldn't get enough. I probably read like, I don't know, 10 of him in a row. Like I just, I was like, this is it. So like my, now for me, weirdly, my 30s are, I just associate with Kurt Vonnegut because I just couldn't stop reading him. That time of my life, it really hit me, you know. That that was your that was your Vonnegut period. That was my Vonnegut period. I mean, I still enjoy Vonnegut, but I, I was I was that's like all I wanted. It just it hit me real hard at that that point in my life for whatever reason. Very nice, very nice. You know, like like you know your your teen years, it was a lot of Salinger, and then my twenties were more like Hemingway, and then my thirties were Vonnegut. You know, I have to pick my <laughs> my my one white male uh, American author of the of the mid century to to focus on <laughs> and i of course am illiterate so i have no no periods <laughs> no no uh, well uh, to be fair we probably also are reading you know uh, uh star trek the jg years of uh uh yeah do you read all the, any of those novels no i i've i've the star trek novels i've read i've only read the like the pinnacles uh you know emzada etc oh yeah no i remember reading that those like like early ones where it's like geordie and training and i remember being like this is so awesome <laughs> and then and then looking back it's like they were not finally what was jordy like in school <laughs> yeah how did he cram for his exam was he always blind <laughs> yes yeah, is that the answer yeah he was always blind i think it was it was covered in jordy and kindergarten books <laughs> <laughs> anyway that's not that's not what we're talking we're talking about kurt vonnegut we're talking about between time and timbuktu now mm. as a as a vonnegut head this was the holy grail for you you've heard of this for years you've been waiting to watch it no you know i i didn't i didn't really know about this i mean everyone kind of knows about 
uh, you know, uh, adaptations of like uh, Breakfast of Champions and Slaughterhouse Five and stuff. And I think, and we can probably, we will probably talk about it. Is that I think he's one of those authors that is particularly difficult to adapt because it is so specific to, I think, reading him. It's the written word is so very specific and the tone, and this sort of hints at it, and I think sometimes gets it. Um, and I think sometimes gets thrown, but again, I, I can see why there hasn't been, you know, a hugely successful Vonnegut adaptation because it's just like, how do you do it? Yeah, for sure, for sure. It's a very specific tone, and oddly, I would argue it's like Stephen King, uh, it, it, hard to adapt, rarely done well. Yeah, agreed. Well, this was broadcast on March thirteenth, nineteen seventy-two, and I got I got a few recent events for you that were happening as the, as this as this premiered on the old television. Okay, great. Here's a fun one for you. I'm sure you'll be very excited. March 13th, the day this premieres, actor-rapper Common is born. Oh, look at that. Now, now more of an actor, really. Yeah, more acting. He's not a bad actor, actually. I don't mind. He's, he's actually not bad. I agree. And then two days later, on March 15th, The Godfather premieres in New York City. Wow. You know, it's funny. I, I like that you said it premieres in New York City because that's how they used to release them, right? It used to be like, we'll release it in New York or L.A. If it does well, it moves to a couple more cities and kind of moves across the country, which is such an interesting thing to think. Like, you'd be like, I heard that movie's great. I can't wait for it to come to my town. Yeah. You know, can you imagine? It's, just like, it's like a play came out and you're like, yeah. oh, my God, did you? I've seen The Godfather. You, you got to watch it when it comes to your city. Yeah, there's something... Um, uh, uh, I don't even know why, but there's something kind of endearing about that. I think it's just with anything that's sort of, you know, gone away. There's something nice about that idea of a movie rolling through a country. I mean, time is cyclical, Jordan. Maybe it'll come back for in our lifetime. <laughs> maybe, maybe. All right. And then in, in also news around this time, there's a couple continuum drag TV movies we've also watched uh, from mm. a little earlier, January 1972. But there were two in January 1972. What do you think they were? I bet I know one. One was the one, the um, La, La, La Lorna. Oh, the, the the ghost? The ghost one? Yeah. Okay. Is that one? No, that's wrong. Mm. Um, I'm going to guess um, a psychic uh, a psychic race car driver. There you go. January 30th, baffled, exclamation point. Baffled. And, what was, and, and, th- and there's one more? There's one more. Same month of this, of 1972. 1972. But start of the month. It's January 8th this time. Um, it wouldn't have been Lathe of Heaven because that was like 1980, I think. And I think that uh, when was that? Aust- maybe I'm gonna get. I know it's not, but like, I'm gonna guess that Australian movie. Hard Knuckle. No, that's incorrect Hard Knuckle. as well. It yeah. was The Astronaut. Oh, The Astronaut. Yeah, yeah. That was that was a peculiar one as well. I really like the idea that in 1972 there were three TV movies. One was a drama about faking an astronaut's death and the toll that took on a marriage, which is very, <laughs> very specific. One was about a psychic race car driver solving a murder. <laughs> and then one is a psychedelic partial adaptation of several of Kurt Von Gott's works. Well, it, it, we've said this a bunch of times, but there's something interesting about the... And this is not even the early days of TV, but early enough that... Um, you can still see things are still not so fine-tuned which is something that i find is a lot with with television and movies now is that you can see these of like it's not focus group but they've been uh they've been narrowed down so specifically to be successful that there's very few things that are weird and interesting everything's kind of just the same because we just it's too it's been too finely tuned whereas like I like kind of these things like what, what a great time on TV where like who knew what was going to be on because they were like, I don't know. We'll try this. Maybe people like it. I mean, it's baffling to think there was a time when uh, public television was able to produce television. movies. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's like and and uh, and we'll say like this. This is wildly experimental. And um, you have to whether you like the content or not, or you think it works or not, you have to applaud both PBS and the people making this on how ambitious this is for like a no budget and it's i mean, it's weird you want to know who made it it was national education television and wgbh tv in boston nice well done <laughs> all right well let's get into it jordan here's the imdb summary for between time and timbuktu a poet hyphen astronaut is shot through an area of space called the chronosynclastic infundibulum he's duplicated into infinite copies of himself each of whom finds himself in a bizarre situations on a different world. Yeah, which which is what it is. But I think if you didn't read that synopsis, 
it's hard to tell that's what's happening. It's just sort of like, what? Jordan, I will say on the trivia for IMDb, there is a note in there where someone heavily objects to the concept that he was split into millions of versions of himself, and that is highly incorrect. And then there's a note under that note that says, we don't know where to categorize this, so we're putting it in trivia. <laughs> right. Well, it's because it's a concept. I think the this uh, concept is, if I'm trying to remember, I think this whole, this chronosynclastic infidelibum. Infidebulum. Yeah. I always pronounced it wrong in my head, too. I think this is from Sirens of Titan. Okay. If I'm not, if I'm not wrong, and I think the idea at then, and someone's gonna maybe it was Cave can correct me. Um, I think it was the character uh, keeps going back in different parts of time, and he like one thing he like keeps living one day in Vietnam and all this sort of stuff. So it's a mix of uh, uh, time travel and splitting up your consciousness and somewhere in between. So it's like a odd. Uh, uh, wrap your head around concept anyway so I think you can interpret it as he's physically spreading or it's his, his mind or it's time it doesn't really matter the point is that you're experiencing different things at all times yeah, yeah. I think at some point someone will describe it as he's going to be split into hundreds of pieces and just spread across time and space so yeah it, anything's possible now <laughs> yeah exactly but at the beginning of the movie, we meet our protagonist, Stoney Stevens, a very slack-jawed everyman who I thought this yeah. actor crushed this role. He, he, yeah, I have to say, he he gets the tone of Vonnegut sp- spot on. And I, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this guy before. He's if For people who don't know, his name is um, – uh, 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 let me just pull it up here. Really, I forget his name. Uh, William Hickey. That's who it is. Uh, and William Hickey, I think probably was more popular as he got older. He was always just be this like we because he has a very distinct voice. I don't know how you describe it. It's like it's it's higher than you think it would be, and it's like it sounds like he has a lisp, but he doesn't. Like he just has a very uh, mushy mouth kind of uh, delivery, and it's very specific. Um, and I just think it plays really well to this sort of like kind of dopey everyman. Um, and again, yeah, I think he's I think he's just great in the role. Yeah, he is, he's absolutely crushing this role. And he, Stoney has won the Blast Off Space Food Jingle Contest, yeah. which yeah. midway through the uh, movie, like, they sort of, and I think this is part of the joke, is they just lose track of what contest he won. So they he's now, they're like, I think it was a poetry. They keep saying, he's like, I think it was a poetry contest he won to get this astronaut job. I mean, and that's such a Vonnegut joke of, right, of like, because this idea is that, nasa or whoever it is the nasa equivalent wants to is going to send in every guy to space for reasons um and and the way they determine it is you you write a jingle like it's like that disconnect is so bizarre and you know and uh and i was like oh that's that's very funny yeah and i mean the whole opening is fun because it's all shot uh sort of like a live ed mcmahon style broadcast of delivering the prize to the winner it's very fun yeah yeah and i gotta say the first person who's this like reporter will never see again who's coming to deliver the prize that when he when he rails off uh like chronos and classic infundambulum i was just like good on this actor he didn't even flinch he didn't even flinch yeah. on that word yeah at any rate as what we've implied sony's prize is to become an astronaut and be shot into this time warp that will scatter him through time and this is sort of the prelude, the sort of the preamble to it, and we sort of enter the first segment of the movie, and and this movie is essentially a, a series of vignettes. Mm-hmm. So the, the first series of vignettes is essentially shot in Mission Control, as if it's a live broadcast from Mission Control of the launch of the Prometheus Five, which is the yeah. ship that will take Stony Stevenson into space. And, the, and I should say the two newscasters we cut back to several times of through the movie, just just hit it out of the park. It's like this, um, they have like, they're sort of vamping at a lot of times. Like at one point the ship is not, doesn't launch in time and stuff. And they just have conversations. I believe one is a newscaster and one is a former astronaut, right? You didn't get their names, Jordan? No. What are their names? It was Walter Gesundheit and uh, ex-astronaut Ed Williams Sr. <laughs> That's right. And and they sort of have this like, uh, this banter that goes on, but it's it's as if like they've done no research and they're just having these bizarre conversations that sort of just go nowhere and it every scene is funny with them they're really good i looked it up and they are actually a comedy duo called bob and ray and their styling since like the 50s had been they would do a very deadpan they would parody newscasts they would do this kind of work and so they're really good here and like the the joke of the whole thing is that you know they're not unresearched but 
they're constantly trying to throw to a live feed from the spaceship so they can talk to Stony, but there's just always technical difficulties, so they never get that live feed. So they're, yes, as you said, perpetually cutting to other segments or vamping, having to vamp when the when the feed doesn't kick in, and it's just so dryly done. Like, and the jokes, they're so good at delivering them. Like, well, the, it's like they do a whole bit on they can't remember the famous words of Neil Armstrong, but they keep getting it close and they just keep batting it back and forth. And they're like, was that it? Did he say giant leap and mankind or was it mankind is taking steps and rolling forward? And, it was, I believe, it's, it's stepping good. on the ground and taking a jump for mankind. Yeah. <laughs> is yeah, that but correct? Is that right? Like you're right. Delivered with almost that like that a plum that you would get from a newscaster, but they're getting it wrong. And, and it, yeah, it, it works very well. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is they're, like, discussing things like, is it a good idea to send a poet into space? And they're like, well, it could be good because when I landed on Mars, I described it as my, the color of my driveway. That's right. And then, and then he goes on about how some a lot of people have red driveways. Yeah. It's just it's, it's, it's just very dumb. funny. I also like they're also talking. It's like it could be dangerous to send a untrained person to space. Uh, they wouldn't know how to how to do anything if things get tough. Like, quote, uh, the incident on Prometheus, Prometheus 3 when the tang got loose. That's right. Like yeah. just lots of really deadpan throwaway lines that are very, very funny. And there's like a great they cut away and they interview Stoney's mother and they're interviewing her like what it's like to send a typical American to space. And she's just like, I guess we are pretty typical Americans. Stoney's father committed suicide and I've been married three times, only happily once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. It's when when they hit the um uh, uh the black humor of this, I think it's when it's at its strongest, because you're just like Oh, they just delivered that line. That's pretty dark. I will say this opening like 20 to 30 minutes in the vignette of the pre-launch that's not quite going right is the funniest part of this movie. It's it's I was laughing out loud throughout it. Like this part they absolutely nailed. Yeah. It eventually comes down to it's it's time to do the launch of the countdown and like because the show is so sort of chaotic and insane like as the launch is about to happen the newscast is literally interrupted as a radical evangelist is is storming mission control because you know shooting this rock into space is to him the equivalent of another tower of babel yeah bobby denton is his name and as they sort of do the 10 the countdown from 10 he's also counting down the 10 commandments so we're cutting like back and forth between a countdown and every single commandment that's just like getting more and more intense and as they're, they're like three two one and as they hit one they cut to the space shuttle on the launch platform and it just doesn't launch and everyone just sits there in awkward silence for such a long time yeah. it is so yeah. funny yeah it was good i think you're right i think um because we'll go through it some of this works better than others and some parts are, are a little bit flat um and but this this whole part about the the just the absurdity of this whole situation is 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 really done well but it does eventually launch and this is kind of where we get we get stoned into space he's headed toward uh the chronosynclastic infundebulum and um it's very low budget but finally done it's a little shuttle flying through space and it's showing the months pass as he gets closer and when he finally goes into this time warp things get very psychedelic like how would you describe what happens inside of it when he gets inside well like i'm trying to think of all the different like they do a lot of like uh, uh, like superimposing like colors of the same images like he's red and he's blue and he's green and that goes and then they'll like they'll spin the camera and they'll do like those like rotoscope kind of like blending of like the film and it's it's all it's all very very 1970s I like there's like six there's six different versions of on screen at some point and they're all just doing yeah. a dance number and that just will continually happen he's just perpetually doing a dance number or he'll be like talking to himself to be like oh what a surprise to you here he's like I was gonna say the same thing like it's 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 very cute I, I think we said the same thing on, on a couple of these, and you mentioned The Lathe of Heaven uh, earlier, and I'm trying to think there was another one we, we watched as well, which it seems like they've, they came up, the, the, own, the restrictions they had financially uh, ended up having them come up with some pretty visually interesting ways to represent things. And I think this sometimes maybe gets a little bit much. But the idea of showing this concept, like we talked about, this concept of splitting up in your consciousness is in a million places and stuff. How do you show that? Well, they've decided to show it with weird colors and and duplications and all this like oddness of. And you're like, sure, it's it's easier than, you know, having a CGI thing actually do some huge explosion or something. Yeah, it's very impressionistic. So yeah, you can you just like sit back and it doesn't matter that it's low budget or janky or insane. It's it's you understand the emotion you're supposed to be getting from it. Yeah. 
But the first sort of uh, place Stoney wakes up, of one of many vignettes he'll go into, he, he wakes up on a beach and he finds himself uh, with a religious cult in robes living in the woods. Uh, the cult follows uh, Bicone- Biconanism, I believe it's pronounced? Biconanism, yeah. Um, which is led by a very bearded man named Biconan. Um, and Baikonur kind of gives him a breakdown of this like utopia he's built. It was started. He started the religion to save these people from repression and toil. Essentially, that's sort of the idea. Mm-hmm. And then almost immediately, the the sort of religion, the cult, is is raided by like military helicopters and soldiers on mo- on motorcycles, and they're just like opening fire on this these people as they like run into the woods and try to hide. And Baikonin explains, as they're hiding in the woods of Stony, that the religion has been outlawed. And then he explains, but, you know, that was on purpose. I did that on purpose. He he sort of explains, and this is, all these things are more conceptual ideas that just are explained to you. But the explanation is, like, he and his friend conceived this religion to, like, free the people. Which is based on, as he says, it's based on harmless lies, which people are happier with. Yes. And his friend would play the part of the president who become, who is a tyrant and uh, outlaws Baikonism so that uh, uh, Baikonin can play the savior role and, like, give this thing. And the idea of making it outlawed, is, as he says, is to give—it gives life a little more zest and tang when things are That's outlawed. Right. But, but, it, but it, like, sort of gets out of control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, my favorite part is the—it's uh, it's outlawed and the punishment for it, about, for practicing it, is uh, death on the hook. <laughs> Sounds That's bad. Right. Um, but at any rate, uh, by Conan explains, he's like, but you know, as time wore on, we both kind of like forgot we were role playing and now it's just become real. So it's kind of awkward. Yeah. Yeah. Which is again, it's, it's, yeah, it's so, that's so Vonnegut, right? It's just this, it's just absurd and dark at the same time. And yeah, I, I, it's, it's funny. It's funny. And it's sort of weird. Like this is all, what you see is very little and what you get is mostly told to you because this is all happens. And then immediately... Stony is like sucked back into the time warp and uh, pops up in a new place. And uh, this vignette is the trial of Dr. Paul Proteus uh, for treason against the state after the second industrial revolution. And can I mention one real quick thing? Did you recognize the actor who is, uh, who is uh, Dr. Proteus? I didn't. It's James Sloyan, Sloyan, who uh, very recently we saw Luke because he played the doctor or the scientist in the misfits of science who um, thought he was connecting with aliens. <laughs> it's the same guy. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. He is, he is strapped to a table in a courtroom that looks a lot like an 18th century sort of medical theater. Like a, the jury is sitting That's in right. a circle around him, staring down at him strapped to this table and the table is wired up as a lie detector. So he's like, can be quizzed by the prosecutor about his, uh, his role as a quote, vigilante waging war on lawless technology. Yeah, and th- this sort of this scene and this vignette specifically sort of reminded me of like watching like The Wall, you know, of Pink Floyd's The Wall. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Like that sort of that's what this the visuals were. There's a lot of these weird punch ins and like everything's kind of like on weird angles and yeah, it's it's you know it's got an interest. All these have interesting styles to say that that's at least what's something they've got going for them. Uh, and Stoney, of course, is there. He's he's a juror in the audience suddenly, and he, he kind of doesn't know where he is, and he turns and asks one of the other jurors, like, what century he's in, but the juror has a hearing aid, and he can't hear him. And uh, yeah. so the pro- <laughs> so the prosecutor yells at Stoney for interrupting and also dressing like a member of the lower classes, uh, which is a very funny because the juror's like, the, the prosecutor's like, I can't believe you dress this way. Would you want to be, would you want to be judged by the lower classes? And Stoney's like, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and and I, again, we mentioned um, you know, the 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 Stony, the character. He's sort of he never really like panics. He's just like just a dude who's kind of like maybe simple and just goes along with everything. Like he never he never shows up in a situation as like ah, what's happening? He's just like, well, can someone let me know where I am? I gotta figure this out. Like he's just he's never stressed out. It feels like even outside of the time warp, every situation Stony's ever walked into has always been confusing to him. So like these are yeah. no different than any other situation. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I do like it's it's all. It, there's moments in this that are also very funny. Like the the prosecutor like yells at him and he's just like i just want to know what the date is and the prosecutor's like why do you want to know the date he's like i don't know maybe it's my birthday i don't know yeah and then everyone sings happy birthday i know so funny at any rate the prosecutor continues with his prosecution and the idea of this is like he's like i'm going to show you now an animated video to remind you why this man is evil and why technology in america is the best there could ever be and he, he shows a great like monty python-esque animation which starts with the best line it's just like the the narrator comes on he's like 
It's a good life, isn't it, John Ever Average Man? <laughs> yeah. And, like, it, the video just kind of lists, like, how great America is. Like, they have, like, 31... It's like the joys of industri- yeah. industrialization. Like, America has... I, I wrote down all of this because I thought I thought it was so funny. It's like, America has 31.7 times more TVs than the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they go on about, like, we have more lawnmowers than the other person. And we have more TVs. And it's sort of like uh, this weird, very... Like, it's clearly this pro-capitalist way of, like, looking at things. So it's like, so just shut up and enjoy your 36 TVs. Yeah, and so this video ends... And then very abruptly, for no apparent reason, the machines Dr. Proteus strapped to start going haywire and electrocuting him. And everyone starts panicking and running around. And someone tells Stoney to unplug them. And as he attempts to unplug it, he, he gets warp, time warped somewhere else. And uh, where we see him is he suddenly appears uh, on a street corner in, a, I'm going to try to pronounce this, uh, Synecdoche, New York. Schenectady. Uh, thank you. And he's, he's out there panhandling for a dime so he could call Mission Control. <laughs> That's right. And someone and eventually he like explains to someone like what's been happening with him through time and space. And the guy's like, that's the saddest story I've ever heard. Here's a dime. He's so drunk. He's like, it's the saddest story I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) And anyway, he calls up Mission Control, which is also very funny because Mission Control is just he's he tells Mission Control he's like he's worried that something's wrong because he suspects he's traveling through his own nightmares. Because why else would everyone speak English and be so American? Which yeah. I thought was a very funny point to make. Point out just like, yes, none of this. He's he's traveling through all space and time, but everyone's American and speaks English. A good point out. And uh, Mission Control is just upset because he's like, "You're supposed to be in space, not on Earth. Go get back to space, Stony. Get back yeah. to space somehow." Yeah. But of course, it doesn't last long because it starts snowing inside of the phone booth, and he's sucked off to the next vignette, which is he wakes up in the Honeycore Lab of Immortality. Yeah, and this is this is right out of uh, Cat's Cradle. Great. This is so it's it's a uh, it's a cryogenic lab where Doctor Honeycore is attempting to save the world's greatest minds. Uh, these these minds are listed as Truman Capote, someone named Julius Perosa, which I couldn't even Google. I don't know who that is. I'm not sure who that is either. And then finally, Henry Kissinger, uh, arguably a man whose reputation as greatest uh, man alive has dwindled to not true. Yeah. <laughs> right. At 99 years old, he's a monster. I was just gonna say I attribute him to be I don't know a war criminal. Yes, I believe I believe his 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 star has really sunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, miraculously, still alive in our time. <laughs> yeah, I know somehow. Um, but uh, um, but we get to the doctor sort of is having this conversation with General, and this is sort of this is funny because they've sort of like tried to distill all of Cat's Cradle into this like kind of little scene with Doctor Honaker and this General, and the General they're discussing Ice Nine, which is obviously the big thing of Cat's Cradle. This I don't know what they call it, this um, formula or this type of thing that essentially freezes all of water and the military wants to use it because it's this amazing <laughs> they, weapon. They don't want to fight in the mud anymore. Like, it's not even like it's a weapon against uh, against their enemies. It's like, we just don't yeah. want to fight in the mud. Is there a way to freeze the mud? Yeah. Dr. Honecker is kind of like going back and forth on it. And like, at some point, they're randomly interrupted by Christmas carolers from the office's girl pool, which is, I guess, a yeah, type I, I was just like, what? What is happening? But essentially, Dr. Hunniger is like, well, I do have an idea for Ice-9. It'd be a capsule a soldier could throw into a puddle, and it would just freeze all the liquid on the ground. And, of course, uh, Stoney points out, he's just like, wouldn't that just have a chain reaction that, like, froze the world and effectively ended Earth? And uh, Dr. Hunniger is like, ah, don't worry. I haven't built it yet. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. He's just sucked off into the next video. <laughs> Yeah, and and again, I I liked it because I you know I recognized the book and I recognized the concept stuff. I don't know how well this one worked because it did feel sort of like it was just like, hey, here's a concept. Anyways, remember remember that Vonnegut thing. Anyways, move on. And every now and then you get these that they don't they don't quite work as well. They don't translate as well. Again, I think it's an interesting concept. It's just like. But just watching a general guy have a conversation about Ice Nine, I, I don't know how great that was. Yeah, I mean, the point seemed to be it's like, eh, science is kind of amoral and maybe that's bad. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, uh, b- 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 coulda instead of shoulda, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> he's then sucked off and arrives uh, being held at gunpoint by, by a policeman. And uh, he's he's chased through the city and what we get to see is a cutaway to a, a commercial for the... Um, Diane Moonglamper, the handicapper general of the United States. And according to her, the twenty, the, the 243rd, 244th, and the 255th Amendments in the Constitution have made it the law of the land that no one can be better than anyone else. 
Yeah, and this is I I remember this specifically. This is from Welcome to the Monkey House. This is a, this is a short story from Vonnegut um, of this this basic idea of a society that is looking to um, keep everything so equal that they have to put what they call handicaps on people so that no one is better than everyone to keep it fair. So as we start seeing some of this being done visually, which is we're gonna see uh, uh, ballet performers with like bags of sand and like weights holding them down so that they can't dance properly and and this this chase sequence of uh stony getting chased by police officers they finally catch up to him and strap all these weights and stuff to him because they're like you're too fast to run away from us that's not good yeah yeah i mean and that's the idea like there's there's a sandbag to slow you down if you're too smart they put like a radio headset on you that just like shrieks in your ears that distracts you i believe if you're too beautiful you have to wear a mask is the idea Yeah, and then you see, and there's one where it's just a visual, visual joke, and I don't know what it was, but it was a guy who's clearly not, not visually impaired, uh, who has like a mask on, and he still has to walk with a cane, and he's so because like I don't know, his eyesight was too good, but it was just like, well, there's a newscaster too who's forced to wear really thick glasses he doesn't need, so he can't read his copy. Yeah, it's all very weird, and like there, the whole thing is just like, and it's a weird little touch that especially is weird today, but like they're just like, if you see anyone who makes you feel inferior call 1776 i was like oof a number that's been co-opted by the alt-right in a big way <laughs> right <laughs> i didn't even you know what it's funny i didn't even catch that it's you know it's a lot of little pieces like that and it's very funny because you know this entire concept is very much like it feels like a straw man argument a right-wing politician would make right now it's like this is what the liberals want for you to wear sandbags so that you're not as good so you're not as better than your neighbor like the whole thing feels like i see what they're trying to do as a parody but it has not aged well because like i think people still make these arguments yeah yeah it's an interesting point um i of all the segments this one i was just like oof this one i think i get what he was what was go- there everyone was going for and probably what the original point of the story was but it has become like this kind of argument has been put to use for like awful political purposes. <laughs> it's it's very interesting you say that because I maybe I don't know if I felt the exactly the same way, but I there was a tinge of the same thing because uh, I I remember reading this story years and years ago, and I remember thinking it was just so wildly funny in that Vonnegut way that only he is. And but watching this, there was something that makes you a little uncomfortable, and I don't know what it exactly was. At first, I was like, is it just using the word handicap? that I'm not that's weird but I think you're right I think what it is is um the the social conversation that is having now uh, now geez like almost 50 years later um has shifted to in a place where this now is you're right these sort of like uh, concepts are getting co-opted and 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 turned in inside of themselves into very uncomfortable ways now yeah i mean you could literally see some a politician like saying this is what they want to do to you and a way as a way to like win an election <laughs> yeah exactly at any rate what's really weird about this vignette too is stony eventually escapes the police and most of the vignette plays out of him watching a tv at a tv studio and this is where we watch him watch a very long sequence of this like badly performed swan lake ballet <laughs> Yeah, so they they uh basically what we see is the two ballet performers and the one guy who just he clearly is just like I don't want to do this anymore. Well, that's not he even takes it, off because we watch four or five of people do a ballet performance before that for like four that's minutes, that's true. And then it's interrupted by a newscaster who says, "Look out, everyone! The handsome, athletic genius Harrison Bergeron has escaped, and the police advise you if you see him, he's very dangerous, and you should shoot first. Yeah, and so we see him take off his mask. He takes off his restraints. He takes off the the female dancer. Yeah, he his storms partner. the studio to show everyone. Yeah. It's just like exceptionalism. They both, they both do his dance. It goes on a long time. It gets kind of psychedelic as well. It's intercut with someone loading a shotgun, and then we see that both get shot and killed for their rebellion. And we see it's that the woman um, who was, I don't know if she was the president or whoever she's, she was. She's Diane Moon Glamper, handicapper general. <laughs> Yes, so the handicapper general, she has shot them. And then she, I can't remember, she says something pithy at the end. Yeah, yeah, she's standing over their dead bodies. Blood is everywhere with her shotgun. And she looks up to the camera and quips, some of the TV shows they put on these days are downright indecent. That's right. <laughs> That's right, yeah. But, but but I should say, Luke, you do you do make a good point that I think this was an interesting concept, but of all the, of all the kind of vignettes, it's one that I think time has made go a little flat. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's one you can see that when it was written and probably when this was produced, you can feel the moral panic around, like, equality, the worries around it. And, like, 
you know, as time has passed, it's it's become the point where it's like, I don't know if this is what people were like. You're, what you've presented to us as this idea of like no one is inferior. That that's not what anyone wants, and that's not yeah. What I mean, means. it it starts getting into that like Ayn Rand territory. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um. At any rate, Tony or sorry, Stony leaves this odd world. <laughs> This odd, very yeah. weird uh, thing to watch in 2022 to uh, land in a world suffering from overpopulation. Yeah. He's immediately put to work as a waiter at a suicide parlor, uh, which yeah. is a place where people can choose to die away from the crowds after having a nice meal from Howard Johnson's. That's right. And but but we should um, uh, really mention the world is in, in this world that he's is gone to. It's so overpopulated. They They basically say, I think they explicitly say it. That people are essentially outside are like all pressed up against each other. Like that's that's what your world is now. Like at no point are you ever not touching someone. That's how overpopulated it is. So as a result, people are going to these suicide parlors just as a relief. Yeah, so it's all part of the ethical suicide program. And <laughs> Stony delivers the last meal to a man who just kind of wants to have a chat before he dies. And um, it's a very it, it's a you know the, like all of it. There's some funny bits in it. Like he he talks about how he he chose cyanide even though his wife was nagging him to take the carbon monoxide because uh, he just felt it was more masculine to take cyanide. Yeah, that's right. Jordan thoughts. Which would you prefer? <laughs> uh, cyanide or carbon monoxide? Yes. I th- I think carbon monoxide's a more uh, a more easing way into death. I think that's the way to go too. Uh, but yeah. I guess this guy, I, I believe he says at some point he wrote a letter to the president who, and he felt that vets should have the option of being killed by firing squads. So. Yeah, that's right. But he's sort of uh, he's kind of having this conversation with with uh, Stony, and uh, he just keeps saying to the nurse comes in to give him the injection, and he's like, I just have one thing I want to say, and they kind of have this like back and forth of argument. Should he get to ask his question, or she should give the needle first? She ends up giving the needle to him and going, as soon as I give the needle, you can say your last thing and then die. So she gives. It's a weird thing. She gives him the needle. He passes out immediately, and then Stony goes, Oh, he didn't get to say his thing. She's like, He'll be awake in a couple seconds. He wakes up, and, and then he's basically like. Uh, uh, and then he's like, what are people for? And then he dies. Yeah. So uh, it was a very odd sequence for sure. And yeah. this again, like in the middle of the sequence too, there's another point where we watch a television. They show us a commercial for these like suicide right. parlors. And the only reason I mentioned it is because I, I really like the tagline at, for the, at the end of the commercial for suicide parlors. It's like suicide parlors die alone. <laughs> yeah. It's again, it's sort of like, it's so dark. You know, um, and, and I'm going to mention this now, and it's something that we can talk a little bit more maybe at the end. But because it's done in this sort of vignette style and there's all these hints at things, I don't know if it entirely works. Like, it's a little bit nitpicky, but I don't know if they all connect to a larger whole idea. Like, like all these ideas, I don't know if they coalesce into a theme where you can at the end of the go, well, I know what this is about. Because you keep getting, like, hit with these very possibly possibly deep thoughts possibly absurdist thoughts possibly satirical thoughts sometimes blending into into each other but you're like in the overall point is you're like onto another vignette and you're like okay yeah i think as the, as the movie progresses and gets later into it it definitely i think wears out its welcome because you start to realize that like this is all just like this loosely is connected just a sampler platter of like weird scenes from von Gogh books that's that's yeah. what you're getting yeah I mean, the closest it comes to trying to set up a theme is this f- second to last vignette, I think, is he's transported to a park where he catches a ride in a vintage fire truck on its way to a parade. Mm-hmm. In the fire truck is a little girl who explains to him that they are currently all dead and in heaven. Um, this, I, this is, this is you know, it's funny. Um, I, I looked this one up because I, I knew the name, but I, I know I hadn't read it. And it's this is from Happy Birthday, Wanda June, which is. I think it's his only play he wrote, Vonnegut. Oh. Um, so I've, I, I haven't read it, um, but I know that was one of the basic, uh, that was where the idea comes from, which is a girl named Wanda June who died being hit by an ice cream truck, but she's in heaven now and she's cool with it because she's like, it's worth it because it's awesome here and everything's great. And um, so I they, they sort of like, I think that idea is there. This whole other thing with Hitler and stuff, I don't think that is in the play, but I could be wrong. I do like this little girl. This is one of the parts where the, the, the movie shines once more. The little girl gives a big speech about being in heaven and being hit by a drunk driving ice cream truck driver on her birthday. Which, yeah. uh, by the way, misfits of science, right? That's who killed her? <laughs> Good point. That's who killed her. Yeah, they, they yeah. Hit her that episode we truck. forgot where where they had to they had to use their misfit powers to cover the death of this little girl. 
But yeah, she kind of explains that everyone in heaven is just happy to be there. Like she's like, it's great. I didn't have to go to high school. Didn't have to get married. Didn't have to like have kids. It was awesome. I got right to heaven. It's the best. I, I, she's like, soldiers who died, they don't mind all the shrapnel and gas. They got here. It was worth it. Yeah. I, one yeah. of my favorite lines was like, so listen, you know, if you ever feel like killing someone, just do it. They'll thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Because they arrive at the parade, the big heaven parade's going on, and, like, out of nowhere, Hitler arrives. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to say, not the greatest Hitler performance I've ever seen. But this this Hitler character explains that he is he is death, and he is there to tell them all there is no real afterlife, that they're not in heaven. That they, and he starts, like, making people cease to exist in the audience. And this kind of weirdly cycles back to that brief moment when he was back on Earth and uh, when he calls Mission Control and tells them, like, I don't know if I'm traveling through time. I feel like I'm in my own nightmares. And Stoney realizes in this moment that, like, this is actually how he would have imagined heaven. And, like, he always, like, he has no connection to Hitler, but he always, as a child, imagined Hitler as being very evil and being the epitome of death. And he's sort of realizing that everything that he's been on this journey is kind of all in his mind. And he and Hitler briefly get in kind of a psychic battle where Stoney kind of proves he is right, that he that Hitler has no power. He's not really death by just making him disappear entirely. Yeah, he sort of realizes... He, uh, he's in control of this dream or whatever it is, not this manifestation that's in front of him. Yeah, he, he's like, and it's sort of this general concept of creation and like that your mind is powerful. Like he can create and destroy mm. with his mind at a whim, which is, you know, true for us all, basically. I think is sort of where they attempt to like give this thing like a, a cohesive theme. Um, this vignette ends and suddenly Stoney wakes up and he's crawling out of his own grave on Earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a brief moment where he speaks to God as he calls his grave. And God kind of tells him that, you know, everything's just made of mud, dude. And, like, you just happen to you just happen to be mud who got a lot more than most mud. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very, very dark, cynical way of looking at things. Um, and Stoney kind of wanders around the graveyard, bumps into a gravekeeper, and kind of asks about his grave. And the gravekeeper explains that, like, oh, it's more of a memorial. Like, uh, no, one, no one's buried there. Apparently, what happened was after his shuttle returned to Earth, his mother put up that grave because the shuttle was discovered completely empty. And the only thing inside of it was a note and some tang. And uh, that note read the thing that's inscribed on his tombstone. Everything is beautiful and nothing hurt. Right. The famous Vonnegut quote from Slaughterhouse-Five. And then Stoney wanders off into the graveyard singing the World War One marching song, Pack Up Your Troubles, and the credits roll. And the credits roll. And you're just like, it, honestly, the, the, at the end of that, I was just like, I don't know if I just saw the deepest movie or the weirdest movie, but it's over. And again, you have to applaud it for its ambitiousness and its attempt to take a tone of a writer that's very hard to replicate and just go, let's just make the weirdest representation of that we can do. Um, you got not it. always hitting it out of the park. Yeah. I mean, that's it. You got to give them credit. They took a huge swing. Yeah. Yeah. This is not, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about this um, uh, this morning, you know, we're in a weird world right now in terms of vi- specifically movies um, and, and I guess partially television where we have these very large companies like disney that own everything so everything becomes this like nightmare ip thing where they own everything and they just sort of like start intersplicing characters and worlds because they own all these properties and uh it made this seem very quaint in some way because it's like we're we're gonna do a similar thing but it's all these ideas from this great writer and we're gonna put them all in this movie as opposed to hey you like Iron Man? Well, guess what? Mickey Mouse is also in here. And guess what? Also this thing. And it's just like this. You recognize these things, you stupid rube. Give us more money. We're Disney, you know? And there's something so crass and callous about it. And this didn't have that tone. And I'm probably not articulating that as well. But this is, while disorienting sometimes, and again, not always successful, there's something nice about that it's a best of ideas, not a best of properties that we have to explore. Yeah, this is, this is a public television station being like, hey, you smart rube, here's a writer you like. We're going to jam all his stuff into a multiverse for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's maybe a more succinct way of saying it. But there's, but again, it's sort of like um, you can be nitpicky, and I can definitely be nitpicky of what works and doesn't. And like, because it's not so much, because it's an interpretation of, of Vonnegut's writing. Um, but I think, you know, if there is a criticism, it's that everything moves so fast Again, that there's like sometimes the ideas can't even land because you're on to another thing, and you're like, "Well, why is this here? Is it just because Vonnegut wrote it? Is it, or is it connected in some ways?" And I think 
they didn't always make the decision. I, it's almost as if they were like, they made a board with all these different fun ideas and little snippets of scenes and said, how can we just put all these together? I mean, know? that's it. They, they went through, they're like, he's going to let us adapt a bunch of his short stories or elements of his book. We're going to just pick like the funnest, weirdest ideas he has. But the problem is they're just like, we don't have, we're not going to make them a narrative. They're really just going to be like, well, they can't develop. They're basically a lecture. Um, like you're going to hear this one thought experiment and it's loosely packed into a like very iffy narrative. But for the most part, what you're watching is like, here's a thought experiment. Listen to it. Now let's move on to the next one. Yeah. And, and you're right. And because of that, it creates this wonderful, weird world. But at the same time, like we were saying with the uh, for lack of a better term, though, like the the handicapped world of giving people these quote unquote handicaps, it, it doesn't it doesn't have a time to breathe. So you have this sort of like what is what are they saying? Yeah, you I, know, and it's and it means you're just like oh I don't know if I and then it's like I don't know if I like that. And then you just move on. Yeah, it, it, its biggest sin is like nothing amounts to anything. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Because at the end, this you know this beautiful epitaph of everything was beautiful, nothing hurt. I know that's his most famous probably quote from from uh, other than you know so it goes or, or or something like that but does it land the way it's supposed to i don't know i don't know if we built up to that that idea is like i was like oh is that is that what this was about you know slaughterhouse five it makes sense to me yeah it's odd it is like they're trying to sell you on the idea is like they sent a poet into space and what he sent back was this profound thought which you know not bad i i get it yeah. i get it in the context of what i just watched but like does that mean anything to any of the vignettes specifically i wouldn't say so yeah yeah but but again honestly it's got to be the trippiest thing we've ever seen that's it was a lot of it was a lot of fun for that what do you what do you want to write it jordan i'm i'm so kind of on the fence of like parts of it i really liked again i liked how weird ambitious this is and i'm always kind of excited when you see something that like this is before i was born obviously before you, you were born and it's just like i kind of miss this time in tv where like you're like this was just on public access tv they put this weird thing on because they just knew people would have the tv on like there's something really charming and interesting about that uh, it mostly works i think um and i think if you put it in the context of what it is and i think they did a good job with the very limited budget they have and with the in-camera techniques and stuff it doesn't all work but i i, I did like it and it's funny i'm gonna give it a seven and a half. Seven and a half. yeah yeah i feel like the first half is where it shines specifically when they I do agree. all the launch stuff it is laugh out loud funny like those two comedian that comedian duo they cast and hired to do that role they knew exactly what they were doing with the casting they per put the perfect people in that spot and it was just like it's a crushing little comedy bit that like absolutely fires on all cylinders i was just like where is this like this is this is a show i want to watch right here yeah and the first few vignettes are fun because you don't quite know where you are i think the problem is it does start to lose it's a little steam and like it's not that the jokes repeat but like it's kind of weird it's almost that it's a you realize it's a one note joke in some ways you're good you know you're gonna get another vignette that's not gonna connect to anything that like some are better than others and it starts to wear it's only an hour and a half but it really halfway through i felt I'm like oh you're you've run out of steam as a as a yeah they, they sort you i agree you sort of yeah running out of steam or they sort of lose their focus a little bit where you're just like yeah you, you even if it's different you go oh it's just gonna be this again you you stop you stop being surprised because you know oh he's just gonna beam out again for lack of better terms into another like, another world legitimately at the moment they tell you the last thought they have on this premise he's gone yeah and which is fine and like there's still bits that are funny interspersed like there's still it you know there's occasionally there are some really sharp dialogue or a really funny like joke that really lands um but it does sort of as it goes on and even to the end when they finally like hitler shows up and they explain it's like it's all on his mind because your mind is infinite like you know i was waiting to see like i'm like are you going to find a way to tie this together i'm like i get and i was like you know i guess that's as good an ending as any um but that's yeah. really how i felt I, I admit everything you said, it's a great swing at a weird idea that I like, really mm -hmm. went for. I'm going to give it only a 6.5 because I just think it like it That's fair. works until it doesn't. I think if as a curio, though, definitely worth watching. Yeah. And I was curious. I don't know how if you how you felt after I finished watching it. I The first thing I thought was I should rewatch this. I wonder I wonder how much I didn't see. I wonder because you mentioned it there's so many funny lines and i feel like sometimes it's for something that 
sometimes kind of dragged. There's also just like a peppering of jokes that if you just blink, you'll miss them because there's just so many of them. And sometimes it's hard to know. You're like, oh, was that another joke? I just missed it because I was focusing on this weird thing over here, you know? Um, and I, I, I wonder how how well it does on, on repeat viewing. It's Not question. that you're going to keep rewatching this 1972 cable access thing, but it's something interesting. I think there's probably more to mine. It could be, it could be. I don't, I don't know if I felt the need to watch again, but I will say, I, I, I just want to say definitely as a, as an editing piece, this might be the one thing I've watched where I'm just like, the editor of this movie made this film. Like there's yeah. whoever edited this is like so funny and so smart and like, knew how to deliver such weirdness with such a plum that's like so much of the funniness of this is the editing and like it like i was watching i'm just like whoever edited this is a genius yeah and i think part of for for if anyone is does want to watch this i think your enjoyment will depend a little bit on and how much how much you can stand of this sort of weirdness do you know what i mean like like you'll know first 10 minutes into this if you want to watch the rest of it like it's just that's what it is like other space, you're going to know very quickly if this is your type of humor. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It and it's like, if it's not, specific. it's very, very specific. Yeah. It's like, if you don't like the, the, the first idea of Stoney getting picked to go into space because he wrote a good jingle, it's like, don't keep watching. <laughs> My biggest disappointment is we never heard the jingle. And that's true. We never did, did we? Well, I guess that wraps up for Between Time and Timbuktu. Mm-hmm. A, fun, a fun watch for us. I'm glad we watched it. Um, but if you listener have any thoughts you want to send our way, you can get a hold of us at continuedrag at gmail.com. Point out some of the references we missed. And I've got a whole bunch of clips from this we'll put on Instagram and Twitter. Because there's it's it's mostly like gags, so like you kind of need to listen to them and hopefully they'll work uh, out of context. But I think they will. So those will be on uh, at continuum drag. Those that's the handle on those platforms. Uh, but that wraps it up, I guess. So uh, listener, we will talk to you next week and Jordan, I will see you then. I will see you then as well. Bye. Continuum Drag is recorded in Toronto, Ontario. Theme music by James Rex Seedler. Produced by Jordan Dulloch and Luke Black. Special thanks to Aaron Hughes.